Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm going for a slightly different format this week because I want to introduce you to three terrific one-hit wonders. They're not strictly one-hit wonders, I have to say, but we certainly know them all for their one big hit. And I thought it might be interesting to group them together to learn a little bit more about them. Each one is exceptionally talented and each has been requested by you, my loyal listener. So today we're going to hear from Barry Winslow, who is the lead singer of the group The Royal Guardsmen, known for this one. check in to see what Toby Bow is up to these days in Texas and where his career has taken him since his massive hit My Angel Baby. Let's get started with this one. I received an email a while back from Greg in Terry Hills in New South Wales, telling me that he and his nine-year-old daughter Aviva spend hours together singing the song Seasons in the Sun. We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the sun, but the hills that we climbed were just seasons out of time asked me if I could find the songwriter Terry Jacks because he was interested to hear what had become of him. So I searched and eventually discovered the owner of Regenerator Records in Vancouver, Canada, who, because of Terry's ill health, was willing and able to relay this incredible story. Hello, everybody from Vancouver, Canada. I just spoke to our good friend Terry on the telephone, and he sends his best wishes to everyone. And he's uh, very excited and slightly overwhelmed at the amazing reaction to the release of his new music. Yeah, I want to talk to you about that. But tell us first off why we're talking to you and not to Terry. Well, uh, a number of reasons. Terry, number one, doesn't even have a cell phone. So he doesn't do digital. The biggest issue, though, would be that a few years ago, he uh, suffered a very bad stroke. And then, just as he almost recovered from that one, had another really bad stroke. But he has come back like a champion. His speech is affected by it, but not his wit or his personality. But yeah, he's had some, uh, some very bad health issues. But I've known him as a public figure, of course, all my life. I do remember as a teenager, one of my favorite songs was Concrete Sea. I heard some music being played today. I heard a song, but the words were wrong. It didn't matter to me anyway. Some people really don't care what they say. I started looking to the sky today. Cause it's so big and it's so far him since 2008 and uh, we set up a, an agreement to uh, release all his music that's just the terry jacks music he was also involved in the sand dwellers they had two recordings but he had a early group called the chessmen so from the chessmen larry he then went on to join a group with his soon-to-be wife susan jacks that group was called the poppy family right that's right that's right they met on a canadian national tv show called let's go the early guess who were the house band on there. Their most popular song there is The Poppy Family, which went to number one in Canada and number two in the US, called Which Way You Going, Billy? Terry had actually written and produced that one. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, It was uh, Which Way You Going, Billy was the first number one song 
recorded in British Columbia. Which way it wasn't long after that that we get to Seasons in the Sun, which everyone everywhere in the world knows Terry Jacks for. Yes. So so Terry had heard uh, Seasons in the Sun as a younger man, the version done by the Kingston Trio, a uh, folk revival group from the United States, the Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley guys. They had done a version of it. And, and Terry had, had heard it anyway. You know what? I think that could be a big hit if I changed it a bit. And so... He had that on his mind. It was actually written by a gentleman from Brussels named Jacques Berel. And he said, <laughs> Terry eventually sat down, and there's a, a photograph in the uh, in the collection of Terry and Jacques Berel sitting down. And, and uh, Jacques Berel, of course, was very pleased because the royalties came pouring in as Seasons in the Sun became an enormous worldwide hit. It's still incredibly powerful and, and listened to today. Jacques Berel wrote it actually he said, as uh, it's, it's it, the original version is called La Moribonde, which is the death. And it is about a father saying goodbye to his son. Jacques Borel told Terry Jacks that he actually wrote it in a brothel in Paris. Really? Uh, is that too much information? The lyrics were translated by a guy named Rod McEwen. And all Rod did was literally take the lyrics and translate them. He didn't add to them or subtract. He was just a translator. But it ended up that uh, on the version of Seasons in the Sun that got released originally on Bell Records, the writers are Burrell, indeed, he wrote it, and McEwen. Now, let's keep in mind, all he did was translate it. So Terry knew the song was going to, going to do something. There's an interesting side story to it in that the Poppy family had opened up for the Beach Boys in Vancouver, and they got along incredibly well. I'm picking up good vibrations She's giving me the excitations I'm backing up good vibrations She's giving me the excitations Famously, Brian Wilson got into some issues and he was not able to be the great producer he had been. And he was spending time in his bedroom and wouldn't leave his room. So the Beach Boys asked themselves, who can we work with? If Brian can't do it, who can, who can we work with? Al said, what about that guy in Vancouver, Terry Jacks, who really has some interesting sounds with the Poppy family. And we hear he's a good producer. So they went, great. Terry flew down to Los Angeles and worked with the Beach Boys in Brian's home studio. Terry said, I think season, remember that song by the Kingston Trio? I think it could be a great hit. And so they recorded a version of Seasons in the Sun with the Beach Boys. Have you ever heard it? No. Was it ever released? It was never released until last year. The Beach Boys released a, another collection of kind of rare music, and it's on that. And if you think Terry's version is a bit maudlin, you should hear the Beach Boys. They're pretty much in tears. I do a meal, my trusted friend. We've known each other since we were nine or ten. Together we climbed hills and trees Learned to love in ABC Skinned our hearts and skinned our knees I do a meal, it's hard to die When all the birds are singing in 
Brian was not too pleased with this guy coming into his house and now working with the Beach Boys. Terry says, you remember Brian Wilson coming down in his bathrobe and playing organ one day. One evening, he says they got a phone call from the, the engineer saying, Terry, we've got to make a copy of the song because Brian wants to cut it up with scissors. So they quickly made the only existing copy of the song and Terry came away with a tape for it. But apparently the tape was not cut up because this re-release was done with the multi-track tape. So he, he didn't get he didn't get to cut up the tape. So it was very hard on Terry. He came back and he says, uh, I almost had a nervous breakdown because of the pressure. And so it ended up never being recorded. So he still had this in his heart. This is going to be a huge hit. He assembled the best studio musicians around and he rewrote and re-envisioned the song instead of it being the original father talking to his son, he envisioned it as people who were in love and the lover was dying. And it immediately took on a, a whole new emotion. I'm shocked that the lyrics of that song referred to death at all. As a teenager, it didn't seem like a sad song to me. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of a joyous thing that it comes off. But if you really listen to it, then it's hard to die. Goodbye, Michelle. It's hard to die when all the birds are singing in the sky. Goodbye to you, my trusted friend. We've known each other since we were nine or ten. Together we've climbed hills and trees. Learned of love and ABC Skinned our hearts and skinned our knees Goodbye my friend, it's hard to die When all the birds are singing in the sky Now that the spring is in the air Pretty girls are everywhere Think of me and I'll be there We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons Terry had changed the lyrics of the song, so truly, he deserved to be, instead of Rod McEwen, he deserved to be the, the lyric writer of the song. And because he lost out on likely millions and millions of dollars that went to Rod McEwen. That was an easy gig for Rod McEwen, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a good, you know, did it take him a half hour to translate to scribble that down and shoot it? I don't know. It became a worldwide number one sensation that in the course of one year sold 13 million copies. One year. A phenomenon. Amazing. I'm chatting with Larry Hennessy from Regenerator Records. Larry, what do you think the appeal of that song was? Why did the world just snap it up like they did? I think it goes to the story. Everything is about the story. Do you know there's a German version of it? I didn't know that. Yes. They flew Terry over to Germany with the mixed background on a reel to reel tape, and somebody had translated it into German. They sat him in the studio with a bottle of schnapps and a big plate of very uh, tasty sausages and bread. And they coaxed him line by line to sing it in German. It's become a German drinking song, like an Oktoberfest song. Adieu, mein Freund, es kommt die Zeit. Du weißt, die stille Zeit zu gehen, mein Freund. Hat uns ein Sommerwerk gemacht. Beide haben wir geweint. Beide haben wir gelacht. Und wie aus fernen Bäumen fällt. went on to produce for a lot of people after that, didn't he? As you said, he, he was uh, as good as a producer as he was as a songwriter. So I know that he produced a couple of songs for the very famous Nana Mascuri, one of which was Scarborough Fair, and he also produced a top ten hit there called Country Boy Named Willie for a band called Spring. He did. I know that his friendship with Al Jardine also lasted a lifetime and back probably 10 years ago or so now, they released a version of Don't Fight the Sea that he's recorded with all of the Beach Boys as well as the late Carl Wilson who sang lead vocal. Is that correct? 
That's correct. Back to when I first met him, you know, he would pull out his, his CD masters and he said, wait till you hear this. It has Carl Wilson singing on it, a version of Don't Fight the Sea. And at that point, since it's been re-released, all the Beach Boys sang on it. But the original version has only Carl singing. And after his period of great success, he became considerably reclusive. And then he became an environmentalist. He basically said, sod it all. He bought himself a boat. He called it Seasons in the Sun. He spent 30 years going up and down the coast of British Columbia. And he became very concerned with what he was seeing in the water, a dumping of chemicals into the ocean. He started a group called Environmental Watch. That was his focus for 20 years or more. Why did he leave music behind? Because he became disenchanted with it. He saw the machine only wanted more of that. And he didn't want to give more of that. What an amazing story about singer, songwriter, producer and environmentalist Terry Jacks. Thank you to Larry Hennessy for filling us in and thank you to our listeners, Greg and Aviva, for asking to find out more about Terry since Seasons in the Sun. Let me tell you, there's a whole new collection of music from Terry that's just been released too. It's called Remember Me and it's a whole bunch of songs that until now... Terry has always felt were just too personal to release. Here's one of them. There was once He loved her more than anyone And she loved him too That made it twice as strong Doesn't Terry Jacks all the very best. Stay tuned. Up next, we meet Baldy Silver, also known as Toby Bow. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Thanks for hanging in. I love having you here. And I want to remind you that if you have someone you'd like me to interview for you, just send me a message through the website, a breathoffreshair.com.au. Now, you may not know him by the name Baldy Silver, and you still may not know him by his stage name, Toby Bow. But Ashley, from a suburb of Houston in Texas, emailed to see if I could find out what happened to his favourite 70s band. Here's the result of my search. Toby Bow's not your real name. Toby Bow was the name of the band. Tell me why I'm confused. Sandy, after My Angel Baby in 1978, the song uh, went all the way to number one. And it became really, really popular. The band was made up of five other Texans. None of us had ever been out of Texas before. I mean, none of us had ever been left home before. And when they moved us all up to New York, it was like the movie, The Buddy Holly Story. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. I did. They wanted, they wanted us to stay in New York all the time. And a couple of the band members just could not, they just could not relate to the city. I could, I loved it. But that eventually broke up the band. So after the first album, the record label was going to drop us as an act. And uh, they said, look, you guys are in breach of contract because we paid you a lot of money to do three albums. Since you, Baldi Silva, that's me, since you co-wrote the song and sang lead on it, we'd like to make you Toby Bo because a lot of cities and especially a lot of places abroad, they think Toby Bo is one fellow. And they, when they asked me to, to, if I could take on the name and pursue the, the next following two albums or drop the whole band, I said, uh, no, I'll take it. <laughs> so you've been known as Toby Bo since then? I've been Toby Bo since the second and third album. My second album was 1979, and my third album was 1980. And on both records, it says Baldi Silva is Toby Bo. Does everybody call you Toby? Yes, most people do. Even my friends that I grew up with call me Toby, and I'm constantly trying to remind them, you know, that's just the stage name. But I just got tired of just saying that. I just let it go now. And what did your parents have to say about that? Oh, <laughs> well, my parents have since passed away, but in the early 80s, but they they loved it. To them, you know, my family, we grew up very poor. I lived down here in South Texas. And so to them, any accolades was wonderful. So, Right. They lived to see you successful with that first hit. Yes, they were very, very proud. God bless them both. We 
in South Texas. How did the band Toby Bo come about in the first place? What was its genesis? Well, myself and the co-writer of My Angel Baby, we've been friends since we were little kids. He lived in the neighboring town and we grew up together because we had a a garage band, just a little band that that we neighborhood kids uh, playing at our girlfriend's parties. And that evolved into a real rock and roll band. And we actually became very, very good. So About 1975, we'd exhausted all the avenues down here in South Texas. We kind of planed out and we weren't getting any better. So we decided we'd move to the big city. Now in Texas, the big cities are Houston, Austin, Dallas, and San Antonio. So we picked the closest one, San Antonio, where the Alamo is. And so we moved up there and we were playing uh, locally. And lo and behold, one night we had a bunch of, of musicians and roadies from the band KISS. They heard us and they were real impressed and they asked us if we could give them a tape and they were gonna show it to the management company and they let us know. Well, we were we were very skeptical. You know, we, we get a lot of that. When you're, when you're when you're in a band and playing roadhouses, people always come up and want to manage you. But lo and behold, it was true. They called us back. They moved us all up to New York, and uh, they put us immediately into the uh, star making machinery, the factory. They taught us how to dress. They taught us how to move on the stage. It was the biggest thrill of my whole life. And lo and behold, it paid off. Like a fairy tale. It was just like a fairy tale, and I got to meet the guys from Kiss. The management company also managed Billy Squire, Billy Idol, Kiss, and a bunch of actors. So we were all starstruck. I can imagine. And you were really young at the time too. So I was I was 21. I would just turned 22 when I left home. And it's just like Charles Dickens once said, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. You know, God is such a comedian. The minute that we found out that we were had to move to New York, my girlfriend got pregnant. Well, she didn't get pregnant. <laughs> well, I helped. But I mean, can you imagine the gold ring right there for me to put my finger and pull on it? And then all of a sudden I have, you know, most of the time, most acts will say, no, I, I can't go. My wife's pregnant. I'm going to have to get married. We're having a family. But my wife couldn't be more supportive. She would not hear of it. She said, no, you're going to take it. And I'm going to take care of everything. We're just going to stay in touch. The rest is history. So tell me about that 1978 hit, My Angel Baby. You said you co-wrote that. Of course, that really set your world on fire then, didn't it? Uh, It was amazing. You know, we were signed uh, to RCA Records in the States. We toured all over the world. The record didn't chart very well until many, many years later when it came back as an oldies because of satellite radio. But we went to uh, Portugal with the average white band, Bonnie Tyler and Toby Bo. For some reason, we were the big hits for those three bands. And everywhere we played, we were like the headliners. to write My Angel Baby and what were you writing about? Well, my partner and I, it was one of those lonely nights, like I said, in New York. 
the rest of the band had gone out to explore the city and, and go down to the village, listen to music. And my partner and I, we were doing all the writing. He always had a guitar in the hotel room. I heard him strumming these beautiful uh, 50s style nostalgic chords. And then before I knew it, he was already singing the melody to the chorus. And uh, he asked me to said, can you help me with some words? And Sandy, 10 minutes later, I said, couldn't have been more than eight or nine, 10 minutes tops. The entire song was written. It's a very simple, simple song, but it was one of those, oh my God, we were just bouncing ideas back and forth and it didn't take longer than 10 minutes, it was done. And uh, we weren't, we weren't going to record it for Toby Bow because the rest of the album, we were trying to be like the Eagles, you know, soft country rock. And this song was very 50s, very nostalgic. So we thought, well, maybe we can get some other band, like maybe a blues band or a rhythm and blues band like Gladys Knight and the Pips or, or somebody like that, that maybe they could record it. But when we played it to the label who had signed us, they said, no, that's your hit. So we went we went to England to record the album. We had the, the engineer and producer for the group Queen, because we were going we to record in Los Angeles or New York. He said, you know, for the price that you're going to pay to put the band in hotels and then rent a studio and then rent the equipment and everything, I think I can do it cheaper if we fly the boys to England. We'll rent a studio and a house together and we'll live there uh, for a month and we'll just concentrate on the recording. No distractions, no nothing. And that's how that turned out. Goodbye, summer winds, ring on the snow. It must have been an incredible period of your life. I was so changing, you know. First of all, I couldn't get used to the food for about two weeks. And then I, now I love it. No, well, you, you know, don't love English food. No one loves English food. <laughs> I had to learn now because that's all they have. What uh, were you eating? We were eating, well, you know, uh, uh, pies fish and with chips. Them and fish and <laughs> chips. Fish and chips was the closest thing we could get to fast food. We were just small town kids. We didn't know when we had a chef and he would cook breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We had four housekeepers. It's a really big manor house. It was owned by the band 10CC. Remember that band, 10CC? Yeah, of course. And uh, it was co-owned by Richard Branson back when he was just starting uh, his business. And I think he owned record stores in England. It was an old, old manor house. And right next door, adjoining to the, to the house, was this beautiful 24-track state-of-the-art studio. So we, ne- we couldn't go anywhere except maybe to the neighborhood pub. <laughs> and that's, that was the, the whole evening because there was no distractions. The fellas from Deep Purple, John Lord, the, the keyboard player, he had a manor house right down the street. Uh, the fellow from Bad Company, he had a manor house a, a few miles down that they all used to drive up to drink with us in their tractors. <laughs> these guys were, I've, I've seen these guys on my records and I've listened to them my whole life and I never imagined they were farmers. You know, that, that's just the way they grew up in the countryside. They're driving up in their tractors with ponytail. It was just a dream come true. It's been so long and I, these memories are so fresh. But sometimes I have to pinch myself because I'm thinking, did I make this all up or did I wake up from a dream or what? Someday I'm going to chronicle all this down and write a book about it so I never forget it. Baby, when I think about you, I think about love. Darling, I don't live without you.
Abby, I'm still intrigued about the culture shock between what you'd been brought up eating at home in Texas and what you found to eat in England. Tell me what more about what that chef made you to eat. They never eat chicken, they eat pheasant, which tastes like chicken, but it's a little more gamey. But to us, it was okay, we were just putting more sauce on it. And then one night, we, we accidentally insulted him by asking if he would make his hamburgers for dinner, and he was so insulted. But... <laughs> And we said it really nicely. So, I mean, all of a sudden we get these big gourmet burgers. They're piled up like a pound and a half patty on top of two English rolls. Oh, my God. No, I guess you didn't get any hot dogs either, right? No, no. no. We, that was going way too far. That's too American. <laughs> we would just ask for more fish and chips. Fish and chips they could put up any time. And what about ketchup? Did they serve you that? Oh, my God. They hated that we had to go buy a special ketchup. And the milk, I love milk. I'm a big fan of milk. They don't serve their milk cold. It's like room temperature. And so I was having to stick these beautiful bottles of milk into the freezer where they kept the pheasant and the pig, you know, the pork, and then get it cold. And I was, they were just kept laughing. And I didn't know if we were insulting them, but we were like, oh, come on, you know, they, they knew better. They're, they're a good bunch of lads. They were so sweet. Toby, tell me about where the name Toby Bo came from. Where I live now, on the Gulf Coast of Texas is a tiny little island called South Padre Island. And me and, and my partner, we used to be avid fishermen. And we'd fish between these three shrimp boats, the Toby Bob, the Toby Jan, or the Toby Bow. We had a band uh, at that point. We were doing heavy metal stuff. And we were called uh, Air. But we were starting to listen to, to music by the Eagles, by James Taylor, by Dan Fogelberg, by... John Denver, and we were starting to change into more of that progressive country stuff that was happening in the early 70s. So I remember one day we were there fishing, and my co-writer, he goes, you know what, that's a great name for a, for a band. And I went, what, the Toby Jan? And he goes, no, the Toby Bow. And I said, well, that actually kind of sounds kind of different. You know, it sounds very French. And so we tried it a couple of times, and uh, sure enough, it took off. We liked it, and the audience liked it. So we always kept that name. When the song came out, Mind Your Baby, this is what gave RCA that idea to make me a solo artist. A lot of radio stations that were playing the record didn't know it was a band. So they thought it was a top 40 hit by a guy called Toby Bo. Because you weren't even called the Toby Bo, were you? It was yeah. indeed Toby Bo. Uh-huh. It wasn't called the Toby Bo. That would have saved it. <laughs> yeah. You're the first person who ever said that, and that's a that's a brilliant idea. I wish we'd have thought about it 50 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Toby, the second album that you put out actually scored another Hot 100 single with the cover of John D. Loudermilk's Then You Can Tell Me Goodbye, didn't it? That's right. You know what? The band started the album off, the second album. The record company come down and give a listen. They hated <laughs> all of it. And that is when my best friend and co-writer, that's when he quit and he broke the band up. So a couple of weeks later, that's when the record company said, look, you guys have to finish these records or you're in breach of contract. So Toby finished the album off on his own with Jimmy Buffett's producer and a group of session musicians. Kiss me each morning for a million years Hold me each evening by your side Tell me you love me for a million And if it don't work out, and if it don't work out, then you can tell me goodbye. Sweeten my coffee with a morning kiss. Soften my dreams with your sigh. album was also difficult for Toby. He was assigned songwriter Jerry Fuller, who'd already written several hits for Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, as well as Ricky Nelson. Toby was sceptical, but... It turned out wonderful. I love the album. We charted on one record. It was called If I Were You. The English artist Lulu, she covered it too. Didn't do a lot of airplay. It was my least selling record. So that was my last record for RCA. Despite this, if Toby had his time again, he wouldn't change a single thing. Today, he's still performing on the club circuit and is in hot demand on Oldies Cruises. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back in a sec to celebrate a milestone anniversary. Mm -hmm. 
This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. Can you believe it's been more than 55 years since this song was released? Snoopy versus the Red Baron, performed by, do I need to tell you, the Royal Guardsmen. The group was formed in Florida in 1966 and they started out like many groups, playing at proms, dances and at local teen clubs. At the time, Charles Schultz's comic strip Peanuts was at its peak of popularity. If you were around at the time, I'm sure you remember the unexpected focal point of that comic strip was Charlie Brown's beagle dog, Snoopy, who somehow evolved into less of a pet than a voice of conscience. One of the recurring themes was Snoopy's fantasy exploits as a World War I flying ace, trying to defeat Baron von Richthofen, also known as the Red Baron. Well, as the story goes, one night the Royal Guardsman was seen by a producer named Phil Gernhardt. He approached the band backstage and handed them the lyrics to Snoopy vs. the Red Baron with a note that said, give it a military feel. Hang on, how about I let Royal Guardsman guitarist and vocalist Barry Winslow continue this story? Barry Winslow, lovely to have you with me. Oh dear, <laughs> how are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm still vertical. <laughs> I'm still alive, man. Oh, Lord. Well, that's a good way to be, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, it's over half a century ago that that Snoopy song came out. It seems like yesterday, doesn't it? Oh, no. It was many lifetimes ago. It really was. 1966. That was totally unexpected. We had no idea that that, that record would take off like that. We were very blessed, and we thank you know, everybody for it, but it was it was a shocker. <laughs> you were still at school at the time, weren't you, Barry? Uh, yes, I was. Tell me a little bit about how the song came about for you. We were basically a garage band like everybody else was, and we had made ourselves a little bit of a, of a following because we really tried hard to, you know, have good vocals and copy records like they, they wanted to hear them. We wound up down in Tampa, and this guy... Phil Gernhardt at the time comes out and sends us a note. He wanted to talk to us about a song. So we got with him and he told us the gist of the song. So here's these six guys, you know, trying to copy the Beatles and all that great stuff of the 60s. And they hand us this tune that was uh, pretty much a novelty song, you know, the 10, 20, 30, 30. And we thought, oh, Lord. But at least maybe it was a record deal, you know. So next thing we know, we go down and cut this thing. And we did it just as hokey as we could, believe me. And they loved it. <laughs> After the turn of the century In the clear blue skies over Germany Came a roar and a thunder men had never heard Like the screaming sound of a big war bird Up in the sky, a man in a plane Baron von Richthofen was his name the Snoopy song broke on a Chicago radio station that started playing it every hour, then every half hour, then every 15 minutes. By early 1967, the song peaked at number two in the States and crossed the Atlantic to the UK where it climbed to the number eight spot. 
the Royal Guardsmen were suddenly thrust from a hobby band into the world of major rock and roll. You must have been so shocked. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I've always loved the cartoon and uh, especially Snoop. I've always loved the dog. Little did we know that he would become a superstar. The, the amount of records it sold was just unbelievable to us. You must have gone through a period of being recognised in the street. I know you were still at school when the first Snoopy came out. What sort of reception did you get? you become famous overnight. Yeah, literally. It was really amazing because most all the kids we were close to in our school, they just thought it was really cool. You know, they'd hear it, oh, we just heard your record on the air, you know, kind of thing. Just when we went out and started doing concerts, that just scared the ever-loving liver out of me. <laughs> you know, just all these people screaming and hollering. What do you mean? I mean, you know, we'd go on stage and people are screaming and hollering and just hooping it up and cheering for us and stuff. And I keep looking around behind me. I said, who's, who's on stage? You know, what, what's going on here? We, we finally realized then we were something in somebody's eyes now. And we were just a bunch of kids that, you know, loved to play music. It took a long time to get used to it. And I'll tell you, the biggest thing was when we, I think it was in the, uh, the it, right before Thanksgiving of 67, when we we recorded and released uh, Snoopy's Christmas, which was my favorite of the bunch. Oh, dear. That thing took off like a rocket, and it's had, what, 55 years of legs. You know, it's been going a long time. I read that it was the number one requested song in New Zealand and in Canada, and that it still sells really well. Yes, it's amazing. And, boy, you talk about being blessed and, and honoured to have that happen. I never dreamed it. That thing was awesome. Just humbled, believe me, really humbled. The news had come out in the First World War The bloody Red Baron was flying once more The Allied command ignored all of its men And called on Snoopy to do it again Was the night before Christmas, 40 below When Snoopy went up in search of his foe Despite the Red Baron, fiercely they fought With ice on his wings, Snoopy knew he was caught Christmas topped the seasonal charts. What do you think it was about those Snoopy songs? I think because, first of all, it was it was totally different than what was going on. I think it struck like maybe a little emotional chord. Snoop was, level, you know, pretty lovable, but he didn't take any stuff, and he stood for what was good and what was right, I think. And I think that messed with, you know, people's emotions a little bit. They really enjoyed it. And, plus, I mean, the cartoon was basically, uh, you know, out and about. People read about it, but it was very small at the time. And when the record popped, man, his, his stuff took off. Did you manage to keep your feet on the ground or were you swept away with it all? Uh, no, actually, um, I, I stayed pretty well planted. I enjoyed meeting the people. A lot of times we'd do a concert and especially like we were, ta- we were traveling with Tommy James and uh, Sam the Sham. We did a big package tour with them. Hey there, little red riding hood. You sure are looking good. You're everything a big bad wolf could want. Listen to me, little red riding hood. I don't think little big girls should go walking in these spooky old woods alone. At different times we went on depending on what city we were playing in so if, if we had done our set we go back to our dressing rooms i'd get in my cities you know and come out and meet the people that's what i love to do and i kept getting in trouble for it they kept saying you can't do that i said what do you mean man you know, these are the people who put us here why can't i say hi you know it was it was crazy it was really nuts you were pretty tightly controlled actually sam the sham is a friend of this program really that's awesome As happy as Barry sounds, the band wasn't. The Royal Guardsmen wanted to be taken more seriously. They issued a series of non-Snoopy singles, all of which flopped. But the band wasn't quite through with him just yet. 
Snoopy for president put the World War I flying ace in the race for the White House. The original version featured a spoken introduction by the Red Baron, mentioning the then-current presidential candidates for the 1968 election. Unfortunately, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated just days after the record had already been shipped to stores. Later processings eliminated that spoken intro and the song failed to climb any higher on the charts. followed up with a fourth album, but by this time they were firmly branded as a novelty act and the group split up late 1969. Barry, are you still living off the proceeds of Snoopy today? Uh-oh. Oh, do we want to talk about truth? <laughs> Let me tell you, just like most other bands of the late 60s, uh, we were ripped pretty much stem to stern. It was a, it was a common you know, theme. Uh, we were ripped from the record company and the producer and uh, you know, when that after my first three-year contract was under the band's first three-year contract, I told them I had enough, you know, and went to work on uh, trying different things to make a living. And it's pretty sad, but it's true. In 1976, after a few years of living a civilian life, the original members got back together and played club dates for another three years before disbanding again. Barry, there was another song that was written by Dick Holler that you guys were going to sing. It was called Abraham, Martin and John. It's a pretty awesome song, but you didn't get to sing it. No, we didn't. It was uh, basically chosen once again by the powers that be. They let Dion DiMucci have it and, you know, more power to him. I met him at that time. I did the demo on the song and asked if we could do it. I said it may help us break away from the puppy a little bit and establish us as a, you know, as a band. Unfortunately, that, that didn't happen. So, once again, I go looking for work and pulling benches on airplanes and doing whatever I could do to make a living. Anybody here see my old friend Abraham? Can you tell me where he's gone? He freed a lot of people, but it seemed the good they die young. I just looked around and he's gone Anybody here See my old friend John Can you tell me where he's gone He freed a lot of people But it seemed the good they I just looked around and he's gone. The song Abraham, Martin and John was a tribute to those involved in the battle for civil rights, namely Abraham Lincoln, Martin Luther King Jr. and John F. Kennedy. It had been written by the rockabilly singer Dick Holler, who also wrote Snoopy vs. the Red Baron, and originally sung by Dion, who had just recovered from heroin addiction. The record company had hoped that this song would be Dion's comeback, and they were right. It did re-establish Dion in the music business. The Royal Guardsmen, meanwhile, were left as a two-hit wonder. Yeah, basically two. It was two-hit wonder, for real. Like I said, the Christmas record has had legs for 55 years because there's always New Year's actually here in both songs, but at Christmas time especially. And you're not making any money out of Snoopy's Christmas the more it sells too? No, hon, I'm just a poor little old country boy. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're alive, but yeah, that was part of the deal that the way they crookedly uh, got around, you know, paying us anything, they, they were pretty clever. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the man that was the head of that, Gernhard, he died here just about about three years ago. He actually shot himself, in, uh, which I feel bad about. But, you know, it was, it was he did it to a lot of other people, too. He did it to a lot of folks. It was definitely a common theme. What a shame. But at least you left your mark on the world. Nobody will ever forget Snoopy and the Red Baron and Snoopy's Christmas. So for that, we thank you and congratulate you. 
Barry Winslow, it's been an absolute delight chatting with you. Oh, it's absolutely double that for me. I really enjoy it and I love you guys. Thank you so much for inviting me. Bye-bye. If you're wondering what Barry Winslow is up to today, he experienced an epiphany in 1992 and has devoted himself to Christian music ever since. He and his wife Tina now minister together. He also spends time as a scale model helicopter enthusiast and photographer. And that's thanks to Lauren in Auckland, New Zealand, for asking us to chase up Barry Winslow. That's all I've got for you today. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, I'll be looking forward to being back in your company again same time next week. Take care of you, won't you? Bye now. Because it's a beautiful day. You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.